original New Yorker by me, Lucy. Working at the Maritime Hotel in Chelsea for the past two weeks as a badly paid receptionist was the last thing I wanted to do during the winter break. Mum and Dad thought that it would be a good idea for me to move out from our family home in East Harlem to explore the big city and make connections, whatever that means. My shifts are boring, slow and long. Did I mention boring? Monday to Friday, eight till midnight. It's just enough to afford my new but scabby apartment in Queens. Thankfully, my coworker breaks the monotony that clouds my days. Antonio is tall, slender, and moves like a reed in a pond, gesticulating gracefully yet with authority. His bony hips swing from side to side, his left hand hangs beside his skinny upper thigh, showing off his meticulously manicured nails. Here's what the magazines call a sun-kissed babe, but he refers to himself as brown, but honey, you can call me Mediterranean. I used to roll my eyes when people would say, eyes at the window to a person's soul. Yet, I somewhat agree with them when referring to Antonio, with his intense round eyes that tell a contradictory tale. His personality is loud, super bright and headache inducing. His stories are outrageous with hints of debauchery. Yet, those deep brown eyes tell a hidden story of vulnerability. If one looks closely, the light in his eyes disappears momentarily, like a power outage in Times Square on New Year's Eve. Oh great, customers! A youngish couple stumble through the hotel doors. New Yorkers? No way. The woman is in high-waisted mum jeans and a transparent white cotton t-shirt that reads L'amour, c'est Paris. Yeah, they're not French. They wave awkwardly at Antonio and I. Hello there, we have a reservation. Antonia chuckles and leans into my ear. I thought she was cute with her little Paris t-shirt, but that Canadian accent is annoying as hell. Can you hear it? His endearing little lisp tickles my neck. Antonio checks them in and seats them in the lobby while their room is being prepared. He saunters over to Mr. and Mrs. and leans on the velvet couch and begins chatting away with Mr. and Mrs. Brown. Candace has her chin perched in her hands as her doe eyes spark with excitement and eagerness, watching Antonio swishing and flicking those perfectly manicured nails. Logan, on the other hand, leans back beside Candace, his left arm resting on the back of the couch. He seems intimidated by this gay man's confidence and tries to pull off a classic Don Draper, just like the Mad Men opening credits, however, with no success. Candace laughs loudly. Oh, honey, I have another story for you, replies Antonio, gesturing wildly. When he has gossip or a story to tell, he always begins by whispering with an excited spoken murmur, then gets louder and louder as the story develops. Antonio purses his lips and draws out a long, So, did y'all hear about that bus incident? Candace shakes her head vigorously, while Logan remains unnaturally still. I don't quite catch the first part, but it is something about New York bus drivers being abrasive assholes. Oh, honey, in New York, they will cut you. This is no surprise. Candace pouts sadly. I noticed that New Yorkers can be so mean and cold. San Franciscans are nice though. They always smile, comments Candace with a degree of caution. 
hoping she hasn't offended the face of New York that is Antonio. Antonio chuckles. In San Francisco, they're a different kind of tea. They smile at you, but they will cut you. Anyways, about that stabbing on the bus. Stabbing on the bus? Hold up, I need to hear this. I lunge over the counter, desperately trying to feel a part of Antonio's story time. His voice is soft, his New York twang mild. Basically, this one tour bus driver cut in front of another tour bus. Obviously, a bus driver was pissed off and at a red light, he just hopped onto the other bus and stabbed the other guy. People thought it was part of a show. Can you believe it? A show? Candace is outraged, her mouth agape. Logan finds it all hilarious. Not the stabbing. Antonio, of course. My douchebag manager, Jane, rings the receptionist bell, even though I'm clearly present. Can you let our guests know that their room is ready? She spits at me with bitterness and resentment. She represents the gritty side of New York, the bitch who will cut you or even stab you on a tour bus to make a buck. Antonio, Antonio, uh, their room is ready, I insist. He snaps his head around to face me. Oh, of course. Guys, y'all can head on up to your room. It's ready. He ushers them over to the lifts. Candace and Logan wave goodbye. Don't forget to eat at Roberta's in Brooklyn. You must. He waves back at them. A few days go by and Antonio and the Browns have exchanged personal details like numbers, Facebook and Instagram accounts. A week goes by and Antonio is nowhere to be seen. I feel empty and far more bored than usual. I miss watching his perfectly manicured nails click and tap at the keyboard. I miss eavesdropping on his New York babble and bitching with the customers. A void fills the hotel lobby. Where the hell is he? Customers drop in and out of the blue lobby, begging to speak to Antonio about restaurant recommendations. He has tried them all. I force a smile and tell them he's not in today, but I might be able to help you all. They scrunch their noses, wave their hands and respond with, oh, don't worry about it. We'll ask Antonio when he's back. When will he be back again? I thought about shooting him a text, but of course I don't have his number. Why would I, of all people, have his number? How could I ask for his number? I might look like an awkward fan asking a famous star for an autograph. No thanks. All I have is his name and his entertaining tales. The next few hours of my shift are long, slow, boring and boring. I cannot bear it. At last, Jane marches over to me, looking eager to share her news. Oh, I forgot to tell you, Antonio's in Rome. She rolls her eyes. For a holiday? I ask. <laughs> he quit two days ago and left for Rome last night. Who knows if he's ever coming back? She says gingerly. He is full of unpredictable surprises. I think someone just stomped on my heart and squashed it. Um, uh, um, could I have his, his number? I ask nervously. I sputter as a pool of salty spit full of worry culminates in my mouth. Jane lets out a poisonous giggle. <laughs> you know I can't give you his personal information. Her words sting and cut my eyes as they slowly well up with tears. She walks off. I type Antonio Bellini into the staff computer, a very common Italian name. I dig and dig and bingo, lo and behold, Antonio's golden face lights up the computer screen. His profile is public. It's a video, a video of him in all his glory, sat in some sort of outdoor eatery. Oh my goodness, it's him. I instantly click play. 
Hey guys, I'm finally in Rome. I'm at this gorgeous Italian restaurant having me some coffee with Grappa. Today was amazing. I was exploring Rome and its surroundings, walking on that cobblestone with my cha-chas on my nobody's business. <gasps> cobblestone, like high heels on cobblestone like the Spice Girls. The video fades to black. I must look like a complete maniac laughing and crying happy and sad tears at my desk but I couldn't care less because honey here in New York they will cut you tears or not they will cut you I hope you all enjoyed uh, that reading of my piece so that was called the original New Yorker and it was written it was my first ever creative writing piece um, at university so I took creative writing ideas and practices or practice in uh, semester one of my first year and we had to write short fiction so every unit it was short fiction creative non-fiction and then poetry so this was the first one I ever did and I want to read out my statement of intention because I think it's helpful um, and it'll get my juices flowing and be able to explain to you like the creative juices of why I wrote this how I wrote it and whatnot so the statement of intention is compulsory um, in that subject you have to have why, how you wrote it, your sort of process. And it only has to be 220 words, so I won't bore you for too long. The original New Yorker is a vignette of my sejour in New York during the Christmas holidays. I stayed in Chelsea at the Maritime Hotel. Antonio Bellini is real. He's the hotel's receptionist. We spent countless mornings and evenings chatting in the lobby. Most of Antonio's dialogue are his direct quotes. The bus incident is a true story from Antonio. In addition, when he went to Rome, he proudly walked on cobblestone with his cha-chas. Um, <laughs> the first few drafts focus on spelling, grammatical, and paragraphing to create a succinct and punchy piece. Moreover, I worked on highlighting and developing the strong aspects of my piece, like the engaging dialogue and original characters. Their mannerisms and quirks were supposed to represent the good, the bad, and the ugly of New York. However, I leave it to the reader to decide who was who. My peers expressed that I had successfully included the gay man stereotype, yet Antonio was not a stereotype. He is Antonio. His sassy one-liners were not there to fulfill a stereotype. They were there to show his wit and grit. The rest of the drafting aimed to highlight the relationship or lack thereof between the unnamed narrator and Antonio so that the narrator's reaction to his departure made sense and evoked a sense of grief. So that's the piece. So I'll talk about how it got started. So. Obviously, Antonio had a big impact on me in the least wanky way I can put it. He worked at the Maritime Hotel where we stayed and he was a delight. He was one of those people that we looked forward to always seeing in the hotel lobby. He wasn't just an annoying person who was like, oh, where are you guys from? Like superficial conversation. Antonio was fascinated by us and he loved chatting. We, we spent a long time talking to him. He was wonderful and I remember for the creative piece I was saying to my parents because I was going to my parents with my ideas I was like I want to write a piece about New York should I write like a fictional story because obviously it couldn't be non-fiction should I write you know a scary story about someone who dies in New York just I was spitting out bad ideas and then my dad's like why don't you write about Antonio and I got really annoyed and I said no because he's a real person and I can't write about that it has to be fiction and my dad said no 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 write about Antonio but in a fictional situation so use him and what he said but you create a story around him and you make it fictional and I was like 
Mm, clever. And my dad's always the source of my ideas for writing, which is interesting. And I said, okay, get out of my room. And I shut the door and I start typing and typing. And I think, okay, this is going to be about a receptionist and her inability to sort of connect with this, this person and sort of being in awe. And the characters, Candace and Logan, were meant to be my parents, sort of. They were meant to be me and my parents, the people who were fascinated by him. And this unnamed narrator was just supposed to be this person who, I don't even know who she was supposed to be, to be honest, and I don't want to make it up. She was just sort of, I don't want to sound like a wanker, but she was a vehicle for the story to be about Antonio. She was like, okay, I'm just going to be here to describe how wonderful he is. So basically she acted as a tool to glorify Antonio. Um, Not glorify, just make him great because there's nothing to glorify. He's already glorious. So that's where it started. And I was worried because obviously I wanted to write in a way that wasn't going to piss off any peers. And when you do workshopping, you have to sort of be careful because you don't know who's in the room if you're writing about certain topics. So when the idea, you know, the point of him being gay has to come up, obviously, because that's who he is. I knew that someone would take issue with it. Surprisingly, it wasn't, I don't think it was anyone in the class who was actually gay. It was quite a few of my straight peers. And they were like, you're just pushing a stereotype, which really bothered me and my lecturer as well. And she said, but you have to acknowledge that that's who he was. And I wrote him in the way he was. He spoke like that. He said that he openly told us, you know, that he was gay. So he's not a stereotype. And I find it more offensive that they consider that to be stereotypically gay than just, oh, this is Antonio, he's fanboy, and he also happens to be gay. So people took issue with that aspect, but I reviewed it and I asked a few friends and they were like, that's, that's his gayness. That's not how I'm gay. That's not my sort of gayness, but that's his and that's how he is. And that's how you've written him. So I want to hear what people think. How do you think I wrote him? Do you think I wrote him in a way that was just super like, like gay stereotype or was it just, I'm merely writing his personality and that he just happens to be a gay man. I'd like to know that. I also want to have another point, um, about the piece. Oh yeah. I had another classmate during feedback say to me that um, she didn't get the point of the piece and that the piece was quite boring. And here's the thing. I'm, I love workshopping and feedback and I think it's really important, but there's a real level of etiquette that you have to have. So when you're giving feedback, whether it's good or bad, you have to explain why you think it's bad and how the person can improve it. And when I say bad, you don't say bad. I'm all for being bluntly honest. I'm very honest. But if I really dislike a piece, the way I would phrase it is this piece didn't resonate with me. I didn't really connect with it. Here's why and here's how you can make it better. Not this piece was bad. You literally using the word bad and I didn't like it and I'm not going to tell you why. And I had a classmate say there's no point to this piece. There's nothing. I feel like it's not going anywhere. And... That put me in a dilemma because I was annoyed about that statement because even though I'm able to take constructive criticism, I didn't feel that that was super constructive. And I'm a tough cookie, but I don't like it when people can't back things up. She didn't explain why. If she had said, I don't feel like it's going anywhere because blah, 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 I would have been cool about it. But she put me in a real dilemma and I wasn't in the position to ask her what she meant. She like 
huffed and handed me the sheet, the feedback sheet. So it was out of the question. I interrogate this person. So I start thinking, I think, well, does it have to have a point? Does it, you know, it's short fiction, blah, blah, blah. And then I remembered there's like this creative writing and particularly in short fiction is about the compression and sort of squeezing in of ideas and stories because you've only got a certain amount of time. And the thing is, I don't want to sound like I'm full of it, but life is a bit like a short story. Your life, and look, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I need to read more about the power of attraction and whatnot, but the law of attraction. But my life, and I feel like everyone else's life, and I'm a big optimist but I'm also a cynic, is life is very much like a short story. You don't really know where it's going. For me, life is a random sequence of events that cannot be planned or foreseen. I mean, some can be, but some don't. The only thing that you can be sure of, like 100% is that you're going to die. That's the one thing in your life that is guaranteed is that you're going to die. You know, people say, I'm going to get married. I'm going to have children. Well, you don't know that. Things change, but what will not change is your mortality. And I feel like my life, I don't really know where it's going. Every day is a new day and I don't think it has a beginning, middle and an end except for death. It's not like a story. It can start with this and that and go this way and that way and the story and the idea of plot is very complex. And a lot of things in life go unsolved. I'm sure you've had arguments with people, conversations with people, relationships that have ended or gone bizarre and you've never been able to solve them again. So why can't that be so enlightening? I mean, the reason we have cliffhangers and the reason we have those endings that are just annoying is because that's what life's like. Do you think that every murder is solved? Do you think that every relationship ends in the wedding or them having a baby? No. So my story didn't need to end with something significant like she marches into Italy and tells him, hey, I'm not, I lack confidence and that's why I couldn't talk to you, but I want to be your friend. It's, it ends with her sitting at the computer and thinking, wow, like, look at this person. I had this rapport with them. And that's the end because that's how life is sometimes. Sometimes you don't get closure. So I think, yes, maybe my piece lacks closure, but life lacks closure. There are so many things in my life I've not had closure on. As simple as what happened to the Sims that I had on my old PC. Like, where are they? I can't recover them. I can only guess. Things are so unsolved. And speaking of sins, even Sims teaches that uh, that to us. Unless you're a different Sim player, you play Sims in so many random ways. You can start off with having 10 babies and or not, or just dying, or having a career before you have a baby, or having a baby when you're old. And I don't believe in life having these stages. And that's what the story was. The story was this is an event that has happened It's not the most exciting, but it's noteworthy-ish and it ends with a lack of closure because life is like that. So that comment really bothered me. She was like, I don't know where it's going. And I wanted to ask her, well, where's your life going? Not in terms of like, well, what have you done with your life, Princess Nokia style, but where's your life going? Do you know how it's going to end today? Yeah, it's going to end with you going to bed, but I mean, not necessarily. I mean, on your way home, you could get hit by a car. Uh, You could get a phone call during the night saying someone's died. I mean, life is very unpredictable. Hence why I also don't believe in karma. 
I don't think that there is a force there that reacts to someone doing something bad and unleashes the same level of evil onto them. For example, if I make some fun of someone with acne, that doesn't mean I'm going to get the same acne they get. And this side, you know, anyway, that's going off topic. But that's what I really love about creative writing is because even if it's creative or whatever, whatever medium of creative writing, whether it be creative nonfiction, poetry, short fiction um, and whatnot, you can do so much with it and it doesn't have to mimic the idea, like the perfect idea of plot and life. Of course your plot has to be complex, but it doesn't have to have this clear, this happened, this happened, this happened, and it ended and it all ties up beautifully. There doesn't need to be a denouement. I mean, the French short story novel, or start, French short story novel, that's kind of thing, the French short story model is very different and I find it quite restrictive because it, it's called Le Schéma Narratif. And I'm going to look it up on my laptop now and explain it. So Le Schéma Narratif. And I disagree with it um, a lot because I don't think that that's how stories should work and that's not how short fiction works for me. I know that the French style of, you know, writing Agatha Christie-esque stories, you have to use Le Schéma Narratif, but it then reinforces the idea that short fiction is somehow like really structured and has to have this skeleton one not really so le schéma narrative as i type away we're going to put some music in this background for the background all right all right we're back so le schéma narrative the first thing you have to have is la situation i'm going to define them and translate them in a sec so there's la situation initiale Élément déclencheur ou perturbateur. 3. Péripétie. 4. Dénouement et situation finale. Let's repeat those. My boyfriend's going to edit this and have me repeat that. So go. <laughs> Élément déclencheur ou perturbateur. 3. Péripétie. 4. Dénouement et situation finale. So la situation initiale is like the setting, the first, the the initial situation where you have to, the start of the story, the main character needs to be present and described, the location, the era, and the context. So that's the initial situation, if that makes sense at all. So it's the, it's, it's the setting up of the story, right? And then you have élément déclencheur, which I'm looking up so I can explain it. So that's the problem that makes the story begin. And that is what plot is. In any story, something has to go wrong. There's this quote from this writer where it's, you must place your characters amongst the damned. If you don't have a problem, you don't have a plot. So it's the story, story's problem that stuffs up the balance or, you know, tips the balance of the initial situation. So let's say you've got a nice family living in a big, beautiful house, and then there's a fire in the house. That's the élément déclencheur or the disturbing part, and that initiates the story. It's the catalyst to the story, okay? Then you have péripétie, which took a while for all of us to pronounce correctly um, because, you know, so péripétie are the little actions and sort of things that happen around the story. 
So yeah, as I was saying, those are the little actions that the characters take, the little sort of side missions or stories within the big story. So let's say you've got the big house with the nice family and the house, you know, burns on fire. A peripécie could be the husband, the man of the house <laughs> is having an affair. Okay. And yeah, so that could be the, the peripécie. And then you have the denouement, which I would assume people would know it's used a lot in theater and sort of, you know, you hear, oh, the denouement. The denouement is the climax. It's the resolution. It's when, well, I've got a definition here. It's the final part of a narrative in which the strands of the plot are drawn together and matters are explained or resolved. So it's the all tying together of it. And you'd think that that would be the last part. But no, no, no. There's la situation finale, which we are going to explain to the fellow listeners. So that's the return to the balance of the story. And that's the sort of, it kind of ends in a mid-near future. So let's say the ending of the story is, you know, a year later or a month later, the family is back in a new big house and the husband stopped having the affair or the husband left the wife. That's the situation finale. So you've got the tying together and then the final situation. And the only thing I agree with in this schema narrative is the élément déclencheur. I think in any good story, something bad has to happen or an issue has to occur. It doesn't have to be like something terrible. But in any story you read, Tell me where your characters are at peace all the time. In no book I have ever read in my life has the plot just been, everything's great, everything's great, everything's great, everything's great, everything's great. It's everything's great, no, something's gone bad. Or it's something's gone bad, everything's great, something's gone bad, everything's great. No story you will read are your characters in harmony and in paradise. And that's what I had to do in my story. My character couldn't just be, I have this great job at this great hotel. I had to be... I hate this job in this hotel, but I have this awesome coworker, but I don't have the courage to talk to them. My manager's a bitch. Oh my God, I love listening to his stories, but now he's disappeared. Because if it was just, oh, he's my amazing coworker and he's amazing and we're friends, that's not really a story. And that's why I love that quote. I need to find out who said it. Um, place your characters among the, among the damned. But you know what we're going to do? We're going to look it up. Place your characters among the damned it's something like that I wrote a piece about it <laughs> plot no I can't find it oh well that's okay but I think that that's so important and even when you watch a tv show there's no tv show where everything is perfect even comedy there's like a problem that needs to be resolved like my best example is community even though it's not horror and it's not terrible and it's meant to be funny there's always a dilemma there's an issue um so yeah sorry thinking about community it's that show with Donald Glover Alison Brie um Gillian Jacobs it's so funny there's this episode I won't explain it because it won't sound funny if if I explain it but yeah so I think that that's really important so basically to tie this all in together the original New Yorker is one of the my favorite pieces that I've probably ever written. And I think it's one of my best. <laughs> There's going to be people saying, I hated it. It was terrible. I mean, you're welcome to your opinion, even if it's wrong. Um, so no, I really, really 
loved writing this. It was so much fun despite people, some people not necessarily getting it. It was a joy to write and I actually really need to find Antonio's details because we were dumb. We didn't ask him for his Instagram. He told us he had Instagram, but we pulled an unnamed narrator, what she did, and we didn't ask. I've got his full name. I'm going to try and find out from the hotel and just tell them how wonderful and how lovely he was. It's been how many years? It's been two years since we've been in New York. Um, we won't be going again for a while, but I need to find out how to show him the story because I think he'd love it or he might find it creepy. I don't know. Maybe he's listening. Antonio, if you're listening to this, I hope you remember who I am. I was the family with the white mum and the black dad and we were from Australia and we would always chat to you in the lobby. Please remember us. We came around um, December, in December actually, so... Yeah, he's probably not going to listen to this, so I just wasted that. Also, I want to give a quick shout-out to my boyfriend for helping me with this podcast. He's actually created the jingle for it, the intro and outro music, so thanks so much to Trent. He, I'm actually going to give him another shout-out, he is also a very, 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 very talented artist, um, but obviously he deleted his um, link tree, and he's Spotify, so I think he's still got a SoundCloud and I'm going to let you guys know what his SoundCloud is. Okay, so I had to stop reco recording momentarily because I got interrupted with the phone call, but I was busy shouting out my boyfriend and his talent. So he is currently on SoundCloud on Trent Tucker. He used to have a Spotify, but he got rid of it because he's an idiot. So go ahead and check out his uh, SoundCloud. Uh, my favorite song by him is probably... Mm, text from exes and ultraviolet i love those they're fantastic he's uber uber talented if you need someone to edit your podcast youtube videos or just help you like do a beat do a demo spit a lick chat to him his instagram is trent tucker music unless he deleted it uh but his socials are on his uh soundcloud so you'll be able to check those out so viewers when i upload my podcast episode i'll obviously upload a photo of it on an Instagram page, probably my public one if I start one, and that'll be the way that I receive feedback. So every podcast I'll upload and I want to see comments about what you enjoyed, what you disagreed with and whatnot. So I'm going to get that organized. Thank you for listening. Big bisous and ciao.